You're watching Global Trade This Week with Pete Mento and Doug Draper. Okay, here we are, Global Trade This Week. Uh, I am one of your co-hosts, Doug Draper, and I am sporting some important attire um, this show because of some um sad news that everybody received on saturday morning at least that's when i had heard it um one of the uh favorite uh, artists of my other co-host on the other coast uh mr pete mento pete i'm going to try to throw as many uh jimmy buffett um uh uh, sayings on here so i'm just going to say you are a son of a son of a sailor or son of a son of a bitch i'm not really sure but pete thanks for joining us today buddy how you doing I'm doing good, pal. I'm doing good. I'm uh, I'm coming to you from Washington. Well, outside of Washington D.C., I am in uh, our office here from DSV, uh, DSV's office in Herndon, Virginia. And uh, I I mentioned at the beginning of the call today that Herndon is a lot like the cheesecake factory of cities. It's it's um, thinks a lot of itself, but it really isn't all that impressive. It's just a big fancy <laughs> diner of a town. And mm-hmm. uh, our, our office, however, is gorgeous. It's very nice. And um, people here are fantastic. So I'm, I'm here all week. I have meetings in DC and meetings with a bunch of lobbying groups and meetings with clients. And I'm, I'm pretty fired up to be here this week. So DC nice. this week, New York City next week for some speaking engagements. And then I'll be in the office week after that, I will be in Portland, Oregon for the big FDRA show, which I'm fired up for. And then Doug, I'll be in California. Nice. So, in the, yeah. um, hopefully in the great city of Fresno, California, but my mm, assumption is no. no. No, I'll be in no. San Diego, pal. I'll be in San Diego. Yeah, even better. Well, it looks like they put you up in the corner office there at the DSV uh, Herndon. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> it really is. It's, uh, it's really nice, man. You know, the, our... Uh, our um our industry most of the places I've worked you're in like some really crappy office over a warehouse like in some really sketchy neighborhood by the airport you know but it's, it's stepped up like our our industry has stepped up in the past 10 15 years and we sort of moved away from those really terrifying neighborhoods where the rats look like raccoons and you know been definitely the case with with the unit I'm with now really really nice offices all right so you're not jumping on a forklift to unload an ocean container or anything after and, the show. Uh, you don't want me doing that. I think everyone's insurance rates would go catastrophic if that happened. I'm not. I'm, I'm not prepared to do that kind of work anymore. I've lost that touch, pal. Yeah, gotcha. Well, again, my my shirt is in honor of the great Jimmy Buffett. We'll talk about that a little bit more in the show. Yeah. But this is global trade. It's this week, and so we should probably get started, Pete. So, what's your first topic? Yeah, buddy. So um, my friend Alex Uhanoff, Captain Alex Uhanoff, had sent me a article this week on um, just the the investment that's being made by both the United States and and Chinese companies, Chinese individuals as well, corporations, into the Marianas. And there's a lot of Pacific islands that most of us just don't think about. And I think about them because I've spent a lot of time there, a lot of time. Just sitting around, Doug. Just sitting around, man. Just sitting around on a ship. You know, in my youth, in my in my teens, in my twenties, with my finger up my nose, drinking coffee with nothing to do. Just sitting on a ship, taking containers off, putting containers on, sitting on an idle ship, 
missing home pre-internet, mm-hmm. you know, reading some book, but they, they hold incredible strategic importance. And these, these islands during World War II were important to the Japanese because they created an island chain that allowed them to, to establish a supply chain for hopefully an eventual uh, invasion, you know, invasion of North America. Uh, and we look at them now as our lifeline toward Asia. And they have created a strategic string of islands toward Russia that, were, that was that as well. But they're kind of out of sight, out of mind. When I tell people Saipan, when I tell people Guam, when I say to folks, have you heard of truck? How about Wanawatu? I'm like, are, are, we t- are you talking about some alien species from Star Trek? I'm like, no, man. Like, these are, these are islands in the middle of the Pacific. Like, I got friends right now in Diego Garcia sitting on a prepositioning ship playing World of Warcraft for 13 hours a day when they're not. I mean, th- like, th- these are real places. But the reason that the Marianas are, are so important is it's kind of the back door to the United States. It's the best way to describe it. It's an island chain that is the farthest reaches of the American empire, and it's the closest to China. So they are an American possession. They are, mm-hmm. I guess, technically part of the United States, if I'm, if I'm being specific, and Guam is part of that as well. And the U.S. has recently gotten pretty serious about trying to be a little more robust about establishing it as a place where we're going to be positioning stuff. We're going to be getting a little more a little more aggressive with making sure that we have supplies there. And the Chinese have also started to get a little more aggressive about their position in that part of the world, namely by putting things like casinos up there and mm-hmm. investing financially and kind of doing the good guy thing. You know, we've invested a lot of money here and we've made a lot of jobs here. But the one thing that hasn't really happened, Doug, is our industry hasn't invested a lot there. I spent a little time this morning before I left for work looking at the companies that are building up a presence there for logistics. And it's mainly very small transportation firms that are locally owned that are agents of mostly Asian logistics firms. There are some FedEx agents out there, but that's about it. They're tiny family owned seven, eight, you know, employee transportation companies working out of strip malls. That's it. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering, as I go through these small island chains and I look at the transportation firms there, who's going to be investing? Well, I'll tell you, everybody. So I think that the future of these little island chains and their importance on establishing that new fence on the western rim of the Pacific for America's defensive position, I think you're going to see a pretty big investment by transportation firms out there, Doug. Um, yeah, that's interesting, Pete, but I'm going to say no, uh, that doesn't <laughs> wrong. <laughs> we, uh, we don't contradict each other much. Right. But I don't know, man, uh, you know, first of all, whenever you said the Marianas, I, I was like, what, what are you talking about? So here's my take, right? You, I think you nailed it. There was some garment industry for a while that kind of tanked and then they came in with the casinos and then it's tourism. And I I just don't, maybe from a military perspective to set up shop, right. Kind of what you had spoken about um, earlier, but I mean, to go, why there's no purpose to have any juggernaut 
transportation logistics up, like why stop there, right? There's enough ships and support. Let's get these things to where they need to get, to get quickly. It's not like it's the 1800s where you need to jump off three or four times to get across the ocean, right? So I, I don't know. Militarily, yes. Is that going to bring some revenue to those islands? Yes. Is it going to have somebody dredge a port and have it as a as a cross dock type of thing? I don't think that that would ever happen. But um, yeah, so I, interesting from the military perspective. Other than that, I don't think there's a whole lot going to change in 50 years uh, in that area. Well, that's the only perspective, Doug, is the military perspective. I think it's it's a defense outpost and our ongoing attempts to do everything that we can to cordon off any sort of Chinese expansion. And I believe mm-hmm. that that is why that part of the world is going to develop. And I think that you're going to see uh, an aggressive defense footing happen in that part of the world. And that's why. Okay. Interesting. All, All right, right. But what do you got? Yes. So my topic, and this is more, I don't have a, uh, an answer, right? You, you and I come on here, we have a topic, we give our perspective and, um, this one I'm just confused about. So I'm going to need your assistance on this, right? So it's all about airlines, air freight, pilot shortages, and how all these trajectories are going in different directions that I can't wrap my head around. Right. So, um, First of all, the FAA just the other day, um, and, and um, I think I got this off freight waves maybe, that, that they were suspecting that nearly 5,000 former military pilots that are primarily um, zipping around in cargo planes um, had either left out or blatantly um, lied about medical conditions when they came out of, of the military. At the same time, they were telling the VA that Hey, I'm really sick and I need these uh, this support from the VA, but they're telling the FAA, no, nah, everything's cool. And I just kind of left that out. So there's this investigation of 5,000 pilots, right, which is out there. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. My take is they'll peel the onion back. There won't be a whole lot there, but that's a big headline right now. 5,000 military pilots that are now doing cargo. Then UPS is offering some of their senior pilots um, buyouts. Uh, due to volume slowdowns, right? As far as the overnight, um, I think there's like 167 pilots. That's what a news outlet in Louisville, Kentucky is talking about. For overnight, revenues are down like 10%, volumes down like 12%. So, um, so I get it, right? So here's all these pilots that are, you know, it's only 100 and some odd, but still, here's 5,000 pilots that may have to get a new job. Here's some pilots from, from UPS um, that are going out. And then, oh, by the way, all we hear about is a pilot shortage, right? Airlines, aircraft, uh, uh, there's not enough people in the skies to, to move things around. So that's the people part of it. The cargo part of it is you have people like companies like Maersk that are buying air freight to get vertically integrated. They're buying air freight companies. You talk about, um, you, you, you know, I think... Um, Got somebody just opened up and expanded operations in Detroit, right? Um, so you have all these uh, companies that are growing into it. And then you have comments from CNN and USA Today uh, that's about there's a tsunami of pilot shortages. Congress has to tackle the pilot shortages. So you got these pilots that potentially could have availability, 
you have some freight companies that are growing their their fleet. You have some companies that are con contracting their fleet, and and UPS is saying their volumes are down. So you have different entities going in different directions, and I can't figure out who's going to be right, who's going to be wrong. What what's going on with the air freight market in general? Right, it skyrocketed during the pandemic. Everybody jumped into it. Resources, money, the whole bit that went stagnant. Some people are still building. Some people are still get are, are getting out. I just can't wrap my head around the air freight industry right now and the pilot shortage. How those come together and how those trajectories are just not hitting each other. So I I don't know. Maybe I'm naive or missing something. I just can't figure it out. Well, that's a lot to unpack. So first of <laughs> yeah. all, you know I, I'm I would I would like to know what these medical issues are that make these uh, these veterans unable, you know, what makes them ineligible to serve as cargo pilots? What, what could they possibly be? And um, is, is it, is it, is it vision stuff? Because I imagine there's a mm -hmm. way that they can deal with that. Um, I don't know what it could possibly be. So I, I would be fascinated yeah. to find out what that is. And they're Second, holding it close to their vet, right? There's not a lot of info on that right now. I'm but sure, you're right. It, it could be pretty stuff. minuscule in the big picture. Yeah. And then I'm I'm sure that there's probably you must age out of that career at some point. Because I would I would imagine that a lot of these pilots, they they get out of their service for the military after twenty some odd years. They're probably in their forties. And then they want to fly for another 10, 15, 20 years. So they have they can double dip in a retirement. You know, hey. Good for them, right? So, is it an age thing? I don't know. I, don't, I absolutely have no idea. I think that there's there's a, a parallel here, though, of what you have in the merchant marine, which is a desire to not have to use American American labor. A lot of the merchant marine now there is a international code that allows you to not have to use officers and crew unless it's an American flag vessel because of the Jones Act, you can use international officers because we have one standard now for, for crewing. And many of these officers have a much lower expectation of their wage. So because we're all trained the same, because we're all tested the same, an officer from one country will have a significantly lower wage expectation than one from the West. So you can have a Chinese officer or an officer from India or Pakistan who might want, I don't know what the numbers are, but let's say it's half what an officer from Norway or an officer from the United Kingdom or the United States or Canada would want. Who do you think they're going to hire? And that's just simple economics. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. if this is something that, you know, will eventually just be a question of economics. If he's been trained or she's been trained the exact same way, and if they're able to move cargo the exact same way, then what's to stop a cargo carrier? from using someone who has a much lower wage expectation and lives in an economy that has a much lower cost of living from flying cargo or flying mm -hmm. people for that matter. So that, that's an interesting take on it. Second of all, Doug, um, it's a word you hate, buddy. Drones. <laughs> drones. Why yes. wouldn't you move cargo with drones? There's safety, of course. The idea of having a 747 or, you know, an A330 A or A3, A30, um, or, you know, uh, a, uh, 
uh, what, what are those big ones from the Ukraine or from Ukraine? What are they called? The, uh, um, the um, uh, Antonov. Antonov, like an Antonov full of oil and gas parts flying over your house in the middle of Colorado with nobody <laughs> actually flying it. You know, that'd be pretty creepy. But maybe that's where this is going, man. Maybe the pilot will be somebody sitting in their basement. You know, I, I don't know, man. Maybe that's part of it as well. But uh, I can remember it wasn't all that long ago. They were talking about how there were so many pilots that they didn't have to pay them very much because mm-hmm. they had plenty of them. It's it's like this driver thing, man. They just it's feast or famine. And then they treat them like crap and they leave the industry and they wonder where they all went. Mm-hmm. They unionize the crap out of these people, pass laws that force them to use them. And, and how about we have a little respect for labor around here? God, I get so I don't want to get angry again. I've, I've gotten I've gotten angry on this show like four weeks in a row, and my blood yeah. pressure. I don't want to have to be on pills, Doug. So can we can we just not? I just don't want to get angry this week, man. I don't want to get angry. Yeah. Well, that is a good transition to uh, our halftime, and uh, of course, it's brought by Cap, brought to you by Cap Logistics. Um, so please visit Cap at CapLogistics.com or CapWorldwide.com. Yeah, but anyway, in celebration of the shirt and talk about keeping blood pressure low, Pete, I'm going to let you go first. Uh, I have a couple of comments on it as well, but uh, take it away on the halftime. Yeah, man. So um, last week in our live Casa Bonita special, um, another, another we, can't, we cannot say it enough. Big thank you to the Cap Logistics team. Huge thank you to Keenan. Um, yeah, I guess we'll say thank you to Keenan for coming out, lugging everything out, and um, all the hard work that the team did to to um, give us that live show. Um, a big screw right off to the DJ at um, West Fax Brewery for doing everything he could to ruin our live shot. Yeah, but hashtag but all, disappointment. Yeah, uh, but in all honesty, thank thank you so much to West Fax Brewery for letting us do a live show there it was incredibly kind of them great beer if you're ever in the neighborhood please do stop by absolutely fantastic brewery wonderful beer nice spot um during the show they played margaritaville and i stopped the show i interrupted doug as i often do because i am a selfish jackass and i said i just have to stop and and i don't know if i've ever talked about how much i love jimmy buffett and and um and I talked about meeting Jimmy and how I was very fortunate that a friend of mine worked on a show and how that friend of mine very um, selflessly made sure that I got to spend a lot of time with Jimmy because you know how much it meant to me and how I got to form a relationship with not just Jimmy, but a lot of members of the Coral Reefer band and, um, and how that, that was like a defining part of my life and what that meant to me and how, you know, I've probably been to damn near 40 Jimmy Buffett shows. And how when you're a sailor and when you're a merchant mariner, it doesn't matter if you were a metalhead your whole life. It doesn't matter if you grew up on on a tractor. It doesn't matter if you grew up. And I have friends where they did grew up in like like the streets of the Bronx. It doesn't matter if you're from if you're from Panama or you're from, from China. You're going to end up loving Jimmy Buffett because the guy wrote about being on beaches and working on boats and being in all kinds of far flung places. And um, he just becomes a part of our vernacular and a part of our culture. And at my school at Maine Maritime Academy, 
there are a couple of songs that were like our unofficial school songs, Son of a Son of a Sailor and A Pirate Looks at 40. Mm-hmm. And you get a couple dozen beers in you, we're going to start singing them. All of us. And, and it could be someone who graduated last year, somebody who graduated 40 years ago. We're all going to sing them. And um, a couple of days later, Jimmy dies after I talked about that. And the Jimmy I had met and the Jimmy I got to be around was so full of life and he was so happy and he just, he, you could not be around that guy and not, not, um, not just be happy. And my friend who worked for him, he said the same thing. The guy was just, you know, just endlessly joyful and being at his concerts, endlessly joyful hearing his music, endlessly joyful. So it was, um, when I, I woke up at three o'clock in the morning on Saturday cause I couldn't sleep. And I turned on Twitter and it was the first thing I saw. And I had about a 10 second moment where I was really sad. And then I said, how can I be sad about such a wonderful life? And how can I be sad about all of these great songs and all this joy that is still here in the world and I'm not going to be sad. So, um, but, you know, before I hand it over to Doug, there's a, there's a line in, 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 in two of his songs. The first one is from um, the Wino and I know where he is. The song's about new Orleans and just being a young guy with nothing in your pocket, but joy everywhere where he says the coffee's strong at the cafe du Monde and the donuts are too hot to touch. But just like a fool, when those sweet goodies cool, I'm going to eat till I eat way too much. Cause I'm living off things that excite me. Be they pastries or lobsters or love. I'm just trying to get by being quiet and shy in a world full of pushing and shoving. And uh, Mm. from the time I first heard that as a teenager until today, I think it's just something I've always believed in. And then the other is from Mm. one particular Harbor. Um, There's a place somewhere out there that all of us retreat to that's full of joy and hope. And uh, his music was always that way for me. So this one's for you, Jimmy. Uh, I've been saying that a lot Saturday when I'm down in Virginia, I'm going to have a cheeseburger and I'm going to drink about 7,000 margaritas. And I think we're going to start with the first record until nobody can stand up anymore. And there's going to be a lot of laughing. There's not going to be any crying, but uh, for those of you who are parrot heads, I feel for you. I think we feel for each other. All right, Doug, that's it. I'm I'm done whining. No, well, I'll make one comment on that and then I'll jump into my, my halftime, right? You met the guy, but I think his, uh, you know, the magic that he gave with songs was uh, when people have a memory on every song, not every song, there is a song in which you have a memory that you can smile and, 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 and take away from you, right? So here, here's mine. This is a long story I'm going to condense because I know people didn't, didn't show up to, to listen to us talk about Jimmy Buffett, but college. In college, uh, senior year spring break, there was 23 of us that drove from Lawrence, Kansas to Miami. We <laughs> chartered two, two sailboats. Each one had a um, had a had a, a, a captain. One was Salty Ed. I think he was drunk the whole time. And <laughs> and we left we left Miami. The other guy's name was Richard. He was kind of a dud. We left Miami at night during the sunset in one particular harbor. We just cranked and we were sitting there sailing and some uh, dolphins came up next to us and we shot over to the Bahamas and uh, just listened to to Jimmy Buffett. So every time I I hear one particular harbor, I can literally envision that from 30 odd years ago 
uh, and, and doing it. And then on the way home, we stopped by Bimini. And then we had a whole reflection on Hemingway and went to the bar that he wrote some of his his novels and, and, and everything else. But that's kind of the memory that I always think. And just on Saturday, I sent a text message to all 22 of those guys uh, about that and just got tons of uh, uh, tons of feedback. But, Pete, I was thinking that if there was ever a mic drop moment where somebody would be drinking their last margarita, it was Friday before the Labor Day weekend. Right. So he gave the world a gift of three days off to have a whole lot of fun. And I guarantee every single beach, every single lake, and every single party over this weekend was cranking Jimmy Buffett. And that's exactly what he would have had, would have wanted to happen. People yeah. celebrating and enjoying life. So uh, anyway, the fast, um, my quick thing is um, Burning Man. Now for some of our audience, you may not know, I'm the guy with the straight, always wear a collar on the show. I went to Burning Man in 2016, phenomenal experience. There's a couple of videos out there, not of me, but of parodies of how people feel when they come back from Burning Man. And I was the same way, amazing experience. If you have a chance to go, go. It's kind of expensive nowadays. I think I dropped several thousand dollars to get out there and, and participate. And we were on a, on a camp right on the, the, the edge. So we, we had to do a whole bunch of stuff. Anyway, that's a whole nother story. But anyway, as you probably have heard that it rained on Friday, turned it into a pile of mud and Keenan was telling us before the show, the dirt out there has some properties that make it uh, super gooey. Uh, his words were a little bit more scientific than that, but the goo, and I can't even fathom being out there whenever the mud and, and the chaos. And there are still people, as we are talking right now, that are trying to get out of, of Burning Man. So I'm so glad that I didn't, uh, that the weather was good when I was out there and had one hell of a time. But wow, man, that is um, crazy. It's absolutely crazy how the weather can come in and mother nature between uh, fires and floods and hurricanes. She just dropped a whole hell of a lot of water and wrecked Burning Man for this year. If you asked, a hundred people, which one of us had been to Burning Man? I don't think more than two or three would have picked you, Doug. And I know. And I, I, know. I, I love the fact that you went there. Just, you know, you're full of surprises, brother. I absolutely love it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, all right, let's get back into it. Uh, what do you got for uh, topic number two? Yeah, topic number two was kind of a fun one for me. So, the, your, the, members of the European Union got together to have a conversation about their trade strategies and their outlook for the course of the next 20 to 25 years. And they said something so European, Doug. They said, uh, we will no longer approach our major partners with such naivete any longer. And they just sort of put their nose up in the air. And I imagine they, they, they took their scarf and threw it over their shoulder and you know, <laughs> took, a, took a nibble on a Macron and then a sip of, a, of, a, of an Aperol spritz and then ignored everyone for a little while and had a huff about it. But part of me is kind of proud of them for, for make, for making a stand and just sort of saying enough, you know, and like, like dramatically slamming the table and then putting on their headphones to listen to Depeche mode for 20 minutes, you know, uh, they, in all seriousness, the, the response is that they feel that they have been incredibly patient, particularly with the United States on looking for ways to build a relationship that is not so one-sided. They feel that they have been victimized 
by the trade practices of the United States. They've been looking for a way that these two nations and, and, and organizations of nations can look for some way to develop a more equitable relationship. And they just have not come to a way where we can come to the table together as partners, not, not as partner and junior partner, but on an equal footing. And they're going to start negotiating and developing strategy on an equal footing. And when it comes to China, they're going to just start dealing with China as a nation that they know takes advantage of them in every turn with regards to dumping and, and um, you know, dropping cheap crap on them at every turn. But then when they try to go into China, they can't do the same. Now, talk is cheap, Doug. Talk is cheap. And I've heard this kind of stuff from every country around the world. But when push comes to shove, people like American crap, particularly high-end aerospace and pharmaceuticals, weapon systems, uh, services and software. So we'll see. You know, we'll see. And consumers like cheap crap. They like it a lot. So we'll see exactly what they do when it comes time to keep the people that vote for them happy when holidays and back to school and everything else comes around. And, you know, European consumers want their cheap crap from China. So, hey, you know what? Golf clap, golf clap for standing up for yourself. But let's see whether or not you break up with that chick who's been treating you like trash. Let's see if you actually pull it off. Yeah, when you were talking there, the one thing that just coming in my mind, I think uh, Elaine Bennis said it best, yada, yada, yada. Yada, yada, right? yada, 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 yeah. And yeah. I don't, you know, the one thing about that, Pete, is I don't, how many people are in the EU? It's like freaking 25 or, I mean, there's a lot, right? And so I get that they want to throw their scarf over their shoulder and, and pound their fist. But the reality of it is there's 27 interests in that group. And if you try to corral in any facet of life, 27 people who are trying to be a collective, but still have their own agendas, it's going to be really hard to uh, have that fist pounding, have any weight behind it. Right. So I, I get it. And there's probably a few things they could do. But the bottom line is a country is looking for the best, best interest of itself. And to have 27 best interests come together yeah. to, um, uh, take on global uh, world powers um, is a lot of golf clapping and a lot of yada, yada, yada. So uh, I don't think anything's going to really transpire with this other than a soundbite that you and I read for about 30 seconds on a, on a Monday morning or Tuesday morning. Like Coach Prime said, Doug, I've got the receipts. I'll, I'll be I'll be waiting. <laughs> I'll be waiting post game. I'll be pointing out who said what, pal. Yep. Yes. I love it. That's a whole nother topic with Coach Prime. We'll see you after this weekend. So, yep. anyway, well, hey, my my last one is uh, is is uh, a little quick here, but I was reading um, that that uh, this is the trucking industry, and and layoffs and right sizing and trying to insulate the balance sheet and all the fuzzy buzzwords that executives use to justify uh, layoffs and right sizing. It's all been focused on frontline uh, in, in the trucking industry, right? It's been drivers that have been let go through yellow. It's been contrition um, and, and trying to make their fleet smaller.
But the one thing that caught my attention this weekend was that Swift um, did a whole bunch of layoffs uh, in supporting roles, right? Not frontline drivers or people pushing dispatch and things of that nature, but these are um, IT people. Uh, these are HR uh, employees. So it's almost the the, the uh, supporting roles of this are starting to be impacted, um, which is uh, very interesting to me to see, is it cutting that deep now? And are we gonna see other multinationals coming in there and doing the same things where the knife is cutting deeper than just the front line? And what does that mean? Um, it, it, should there be a panic out there? Is it going to mean people are gonna be jumping ship? And the one group that is a wild card, Pete, on this whole thing is owner operators, right? The guys out there that have one to 10 trucks or whatever uh, amount you want, you know, five to 15 trucks, whatever, the small guys who is driving the truck and paying the bills and, and all that kind of stuff. So with all this change and pivot um, with sometimes there's drivers entering the market because of situations like yellow um, with these multinationals, but what's going to go on with the owner operators? Are they going to hunker down and just hold on for dear life, or are they going to to rise up and take advantage of the situation because of their low overhead and their cost structures where they can be more competitive? And even though there's lots of capacity, come in and take advantage of it. So as all of these things are happening, and now that the knife is cutting into supporting roles, I'm interested to see what the backstory is and the page two story of what's going to happen with owner operators. Are they going to follow suit? Or are they going to pivot in a different direction and they're going to have their day in the sun in 2024? So anyway, owner operators, I'm interested to see how they're going to respond to all this. Yeah, Doug, I'm going to go day in the sun on this one. I think that the fact that they have the ability to actually control an asset and they can be a little more flexible given the fact that they have financial control of that asset and um, the ability to um, the ability to put that asset where it needs to be and to work with a bit more control. I think that that's going to put them in the right kind of place. They've, no matter where the market has gone up and down, constrained, unconstrained, they've just been in a better position than a lot of these other uh, folks have been. And uh, they've been more consistent. So I think that they're going to find themselves in a good place. Could be wrong. Honestly, I hope I'm not. I hope I'm mm -hmm. not. They've made the investment. They should get the payoff. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good points. Good points. We'll see. That'll be the one. All right. Well, four topics and a half time. I know I'm exhausted, Doug, but that's <laughs> going to do it for another edition of Global Trade this week. I'm uh, Pete Mento, and that's Doug in his crazy shirt. I still can't believe he's actually let it go a little. Bit I still this got week. the white T-shirt, so I'm not going too crazy. Not going you're, too crazy. You're not. But uh, for the boys in the booth, for Keenan and Doug and I, thank you all for joining us, and thank you to Cap Logistics as always for supporting the show. Tell your friends to subscribe, and we'll see you again next week for another edition of Global Trade this week. Thanks, Doug. Excellent. Thanks, Pete. See you, buddy.